Today's scripture is Exodus 6, verses 1 to 13. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. As you're being seated, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word again. Um, as we come and we humble ourselves before your word, Lord, would you teach us? Would you instruct us? Would you encourage us? Um, challenge us, Lord. We, we want to be your people as you are our God. And Father, would you be with the children downstairs as they hear of you and your uh, wondrous deeds, Lord? Would they come to know and understand who you are in the fullness of who you are in Jesus? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I don't know how you came this morning. Um, eager, reluctant, dragged by a spouse, maybe. I don't know how you're feeling this morning. Are you thriving? <laughs> or barely surviving? Uh, but here's what I know. I know that if you have lived longer than five minutes, then there has been a day or a week or a month or maybe longer when you have been broken in spirit. When you have been broken in spirit, where the weight of life is just too heavy, when it's difficult to believe the truths of God's word, when confronted with the realities of your circumstance, when it's difficult to listen to our Christian brothers and sisters when they come to us and talk of God's faithfulness and his goodness uh, because the noise of everything else around us is just that little bit louder. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're, you've come in and you are barely holding it together. And if that's you, the first thing to say is, well done. You've made a good decision. Well done from getting up out of bed when you didn't want to and making it here to be with us. And if this is you, and it may be little comfort to you to know this, but this is where the Israelites are at in our story at this point 
in the story of Exodus. In the space of just a chapter, you'll have noticed that we have moved from worshipping God in hopeful expectation of deliverance at the end of chapter 4 to at the end of chapter 5, despairing having had that hope crushed. And this can be us, can't it, from week to week. Maybe last week, you're worshipping in hopeful expectation and this week you're crushed. We find ourselves today at perhaps the lowest part of the story of Exodus. Not only are the Israelites still enslaved, and they've been enslaved for a while, but Moses' actions in obedience to God have made things worse, that their burdens have got heavier, and maybe the hardest thing of all is that the hope that they were given was just as quickly taken from them. This is where Moses and the Israelites are today. And we ended last week with them doing what we often do, right? When we are in a position like this, we look for someone to blame. Who is to blame for this? At the end of chapter 5, the Israelites blame Moses, and Moses in turn blames God as he says, Why did you do this? Why did you even send me to do this? He says, Why have you committed this evil? And so here's the question today. What do we do on a day like this? What do we do on a day like this, on one of those days of despair when the world feels overwhelming, where the burdens just seem to be getting heavier by the day, where God seems distant or even worse, evil? What do we do? Now, there's an answer in our text today, and it's a simple one, and it's this. We need to know that he is the Lord. We need to know that he is the Lord. Now, that that answer might seem simple or or even trite, right, if you are currently burdened by life. But I want to convince you today that to truly know that he is the Lord is the deepest comfort in our suffering. To, To truly know that he is the Lord is an anchor for souls that are caught in storms. Today, we need to know, Christ City, that he is the Lord. And I want to build this out today with three points, but I'm going to give them to you as they come. And so the first point today is that we need to know that He is the Lord who makes covenants. We need to know that He is the Lord who makes covenants. One of the features of chapter 6 that you'll have noticed as you read it is the repetition of God saying, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And this is why I think this is the answer that God is giving us today. And now remember, when when we read in our Bibles, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, this is a a translation of Yahweh. This is I am, the, the name of God that has been revealed to the people. Five times God punctuates this chapter with these words, and it indicates to us that there is something in this statement that is going to help interpret this chapter for us. If you think about it, in many ways, chapter six is is simply answering a question that was posed earlier by Pharaoh. Earlier in chapter 5, you'll remember when, when Moses confronted Pharaoh, what did he say? Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. 
If you think about it, this, this question is not just a lack of knowledge on Pharaoh's part, although it is, right? He's not heard of Yahweh before, of all the gods, he's not heard of Yahweh. But it's not just a lack of knowledge, is it? It's a lack of respect. It's a lack of respect. It's not just who are you, as in I've never heard of you. It's who are you that I should listen to you? What I want to suggest today is that it's not just Pharaoh who doesn't know Yahweh. It's not just Pharaoh who doesn't know Yahweh yet. It's also Moses and Israel who don't yet truly know who the Lord is. Let me explain what I mean. In in verse uh, 2, after hearing Moses' complaints, it says this, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. In many ways, when we read this, I don't know how you feel as you read this, but it feels like a bit of a repetition of what we've been reading. right? We've heard this before. We've already read this in Exodus, but there's a difference here, at least for Moses, in, in hearing this from God. And the difference is, is that the word covenant is invoked. The word covenant is invoked. He says, I have established a covenant and I have remembered my covenant. Now, very quickly, what is a covenant? What, what is a covenant? Very, very simply, and there's lots to it, but very simply, a covenant is a binding relationship between two parties made with vows and with accompanying obligations to those vows. And, and, and the best way for us in, in Vancouver, 21st century Vancouver, for us to understand this in a world that is not rife with covenants, uh, is to understand it as, as like marriage vows, right? the, the marriage covenant. Where two people make solemn vows to one another and fulfill their obligation to the covenant based upon those vows. We've all been to a wedding. We know what that looks like. That's what this is. And, and, and if you follow the thread of the Bible, take a, take a step back for a second. You follow the thread of the Bible. What you're going to see is that covenants are the means by which God enters into and maintains relationship with his creation. All the way through. There's a number of covenants all the way through. If you track the Bible, you'll see a number of covenants that God makes with his people in order to enter in and maintain relationship with them. And while each of these covenants are different in a sense, there are two features that are consistent in all of God's covenants. The first is this, God enters covenants by grace. God enters covenants by grace, meaning that God doesn't look around for for people who are worthy of a relationship with him. That's often how we do the marriage thing, right? We look around for someone who's worthy of a relationship with me. Those who are good enough, those who are special enough. But that's not how God enters a covenant. God chooses who he chooses according to his sovereign grace. 
He chooses who he chooses according to his sovereign grace. It's not because there is anything in the people that he is covenanting with. And we see this said most clearly later in Deuteronomy 7 where Moses says to Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And if they thought, okay, yeah, then we must be special. It says, no, it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. It's not because you were the prettiest. In fact, you weren't. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God enters into covenants by grace, by grace. But second, God maintains covenants by his faithfulness, his steadfast love and faithfulness. God, Christ City, is, is faithful to the vows that he makes. And it's important that we know this because what God says, if you look at your books, what God says in verses 3 to 5, that he has made a covenant, he has established a covenant, and he has remembered this covenant, forms the basis for what he later says in verses 6 to 8. He says, I have made a covenant, therefore, and then there's a section of I will statements from verse 6, where God says, Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will Bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. In the same way that I would say of my wife, Sarah, that I have established a covenant with her, therefore I will. And you've been to a wedding. I will love you in sickness and in health. I will care for and protect you. I will put out the garbage. <laughs> that apparently was in our vows. In the same way, God is saying, I have made a covenant and therefore I will rescue you from Egypt to the land of Canaan. I will bring you from bondage to blessing. The covenant is the basis of the I will statements in chapter 6. But as with marriage, the point of the covenant is not simply what you get out of the relationship. It's not simply that they get to be free. It's not simply that they get to possess the land. It's not about what you get out of the relationship. It's about the relationship itself. What, what do they get out of this? They get God. What do you get out of your marriage? You get them. And we see that because right in the center of this list of I wills, uh, what we have is a line that will be used as, as shorthand for God's covenant relationship 
with Israel and with people all the way through the Bible, all the way, in fact, to Revelation 21, where it says, I will take you to be my people and you will be my God. That, that shorthand throughout the Bible, every time you read that in the Bible, that is God invoking the covenant that he is making with his people. This language is official covenant language. It's the language of marriage vows. I will take you to be my people and you will be my God. And so in a sense, what is happening here in this chapter at this low point in the story is God is reminding Israel of his vows to her. He's reminding her that because he has made a covenant with her, he is committed to her. He is committed to love and protect her, to fight for her and to redeem her. And Christ City, when we're faced with the troubles of life, that's what we need to know about our God. That's the kind of relationship that we can have with God. We need to know the Lord in in this way. Not simply to know of him or or about him, but to know him as the God who has made vows to us and is therefore committed to us and he won't give up on us and he will fight for us. Not because you're special. Not because you're special, but because he is faithful. So Christ City, do you know the Lord? In your, in your suffering, do you know the Lord like that? You know, what, what's sad about this text is that even after God reminds Israel of his vows to her, such is the pain and the suffering that they feel that they can't even listen. It says in verse 9 that they are broken in spirit. Their spirits are broken. And what they needed in this moment was more than a promise. They needed something more. Point one today, we need to know that he is the Lord who makes covenants. Point two today, he is the Lord who keeps covenants. One one of the puzzling questions, you may have picked up on this when the scripture is read, one of the puzzling questions in this chapter is what to make of verse three, where God says, I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, But by my name, the Lord, by Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, this is puzzling because what seems to be implied here is that the patriarchs didn't know the name Yahweh. They they were unaware of the name Yahweh. But if you read through Genesis, if you ever read, read through Genesis, over 150 times the name Yahweh is used. So, so, so what are we to do here? Over 150 times, the name Yahweh is used. And not only that, Abraham himself, in Genesis 12, calls upon the name of the Lord. He calls upon Yahweh. So so what does it mean that God didn't make himself known by this name, Yahweh? And there's there's a, a whole bunch of suggestions as to how to resolve this apparent uh, conundrum. One option is, is that the translation of, of verse 3 should actually read, Did I not make myself known as Yahweh? That's one option. And another option is that Moses, having had the name Yahweh revealed to him, he then writes Genesis, and what he does is he puts the name Yahweh back into the mouths of the patriarchs, as it were. 
So, so one option we have on the table is that Exodus says something different and another is to, is to change what Genesis says. And I think there are a number of issues with each of these different options. Um, and you can talk to me afterwards about what I think are the major issues about this, but it's uh, not enough time today. But I also think there's a better answer. There's a better answer. So the question is, what is God saying here? That he, that he did not make his name Yahweh known to them. Well, I think... The right understanding of this verse, and you'll be happy to know that I do not stand alone in scholarship um, when it comes to this answer. But I think the right answer, the right way to understand this verse is that it's not that the patriarchs did not yet know the name Yahweh. It's that the meaning of the name Yahweh was not yet fully known. It's not that they did not know the name Yahweh, it's that the meaning of the name Yahweh was not yet fully known. They, they knew the name, but they did not know what the name meant. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, if you've ever read Lord of the Rings, which if you haven't, just get up right now <laughs> out and go and read it. It's about time. It's about that time. If you've ever read Lord of the Rings, or maybe you've watched the films, that's enough. Um, in the Lord of the Rings, there's a character called Treebeard. Right? It's a long bit in the book, if you remember. A character called Treebeard, um, he's an ent, a walking, talking tree. Um, and someone asks him his name, and he says this. He says, my name is growing all the time. And I've lived a very long, long time. So my name is like a story. Real names tell you the story of the things they belong to. Real names tell you the story of the things they belong to. And now I like that because it reminds us that, that a name is more than just the sum of its letters. A name to be understood is more than just the sum of its letters. A name tells a story. A name is, is imbued with a history. In a sense, a name is only really understood by that story. And this is what I think is being said of God's name here. That while Yahweh was known before the Exodus, Yahweh would not be truly known until after the Exodus. Now, let me be clear, God, God doesn't change. It's not that, that God changes, but as he reveals himself in history, in making himself known to us, our understanding of him does. It grows. And that is what we have in our, our Bibles, actually. As you read through the, the, the Bible, God is revealing himself to us, but he's revealing himself to us in history so that we can grow in our understanding of who he is and so that while he does not change, we will as we get to know him, as we learn about him and his wondrous deeds, as we get to know all that he is, all that his name truly means. And what we see in our Bibles is that what God does in history is he uses definitive moments. He uses these definitive moments to, to reveal something about himself. And in the Old Testament, the definitive moment is the Exodus. 
It, it is the Exodus. The moment where, where Israel's understanding of God would change forever, where what the patriarchs knew partially, they would know more fully. Where God, who is known to have made promises, is now going to be known as the God who keeps his promises. What we have in this moment as we stand at the cusp of the Exodus, you know, that's where we're at. Chapter 6 is right on the edge of what God is going to do. Next couple of weeks, there's going to be fireworks. We're right on the edge. As we stand at the cusp of the Exodus event, it, this is the moment where what God says he will do, he does. All of those I will that are spoken of in the future tense will become and move into the present tense. Where from this moment, Yahweh will no longer be known as the God who has made promises. He'll be remembered and known as the God who kept them. Herman Bavink, the Dutch theologian, puts it like this. He says, from this point on, the name Yahweh is the description and guarantee of the fact that God is and remains the God of his people, unchanging in his grace and his faithfulness. And that is something that could not be disclosed before the time of Moses. A long time had to pass to prove that God is faithful and unchanging. A person's faithfulness can only be tested in the long run, especially in times of distress. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that the name Yahweh meant something before the Exodus, but from now on, Yahweh would mean something entirely different. As the Exodus becomes a, a monument in time for the people of God, of God's faithfulness to them, Yahweh will be known from now on as the God who is faithful. In fact, as Bavink says, such is the nature of promise keeping and faithfulness that it can only be fully known when we look backwards. It can only be fully known once it's been done. Verse 7 says, When will you know that I am the Lord your God? Once I have taken you out of Egypt, once I have saved you, once I have proved myself faithful to my promises, then you will truly know what Yahweh means. Christ City, this is the nature of knowing God. Not just knowing that he makes promises, but knowing that he keeps them. So that even as we walk forward by faith, we can only truly know the Lord in his fullness as we look back to his faithfulness. And so here's the question. Do you know Yahweh? Do you know the Lord? Here's a thought. In this valley that you are in today, It might just be where you truly learn who the Lord is. The, the, the suffering that you're experiencing or have been experiencing right now might just be where you not only learn to trust him, but that you learn that he is trustworthy. As you look back at this, as you look back at this season, 
If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've been dragged here or invited here or you stumbled in for whatever reason, uh, let me tell you this. Um, you know, you can't truly know God where you're sitting. Do you know, you, you can't truly know God. You, you can know his name. You, you can know about him. But if you truly want to know him as he is known by many of us here, you have to step forward in faith so that you can look back at his faithfulness. You have to step forward in faith so that you can look back and see that he is faithful. If that's you, I want to invite you, step forward in faith. What's the worst that could happen? Step forward in faith and see that he is faithful. See that he is trustworthy. If, if that's you, or, or maybe you're here today and you're a younger Christian. You're new to the faith or you're just younger. And you're, you're, you're going through something and it's weighing you down and it's clouding your vision and you're struggling to know what to do. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go up to an older Christian who's sitting near you. Gray hair is a good start. No hair, even better. I want you to go to an older Christian sitting near you, and I want you to ask him the question, is he faithful? Is he faithful? Has he been faithful to you? Has he got you through? The other thing in this text that you'll have noticed is that we didn't read the genealogy. Now, I wanted it read, but I was told that as a mercy to the scripture reader... Uh, we weren't to include it. If you look at your Bibles, there is a genealogy that has been placed or plonked into the middle of this text. And you might be asking yourself the question, why is that included? Now, let me just say, there's a reason it's included. In fact, there's a number of reasons why there's a genealogy included at this point. Uh, but one of the reasons that this genealogy is included is because it draws a line across generations. It draws a line across generations from Israel all the way down to a guy called Phineas, which is the gener generational line from the promises to their fulfillment. From the promises to their fulfillment. It draws a line from God making a covenant to God keeping his covenant. And that's what the Bible does. And that's what older Christians do for us. Is they give us a perspective when we're in the valley, when we're suffering, when we only know God as the God who has made promises to us, they can show us, the Bible tells us, that we have a God who keeps his promises. Christ City, he is faithful. He's faithful. Last point today. First, he is the Lord who makes covenants. Second, he is the Lord who keeps covenants. Third, he is the Lord of a new and better covenant. 
Another thing that this genealogy does, uh, it's working hard, isn't it, this genealogy? We didn't read. Um, another thing that this genealogy does is it reminds us that while God is faithful, often his people are not. Often his people are not. When you see a long list of names in the Bible, go and track their stories. It's a mess. It, it, it's a mess. You can go through the names, but, but let's just take one, Phineas. The one uh, that the genealogy ends on, he's going to become famous later in Numbers 25 where uh, he's going to, uh, it's going to be gruesome. You can go there later, Numbers 25, check out the story of Phineas. But the people of Israel have once again turned away from God and turned towards the idols of the nation. They've once again been unfaithful. And this is the theme of the Old Testament. In fact, a good summary of the Old Testament is that it is a story of both God's faithfulness to his side of the covenant and human unfaithfulness to their side of the covenant. Often you see it, don't you, in the Old Testament. How is Israel described? As God's treasured possession? Yeah, but also as an adulterous wife. An adulterous wife, unfaithful to God. And so while God makes a succession of covenants with his people, they all have this problem. There's a problem that is built within that while God is faithful, his people are not. That while God loves them, they don't love him back. And so God, through his prophets, would speak of a new and better and altogether different covenant that he was going to make with his people. We read about it in Jeremiah 31 where we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see that covenant language. I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach then his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Time and time again, God would be faithful and the people would not. God would make and uphold a covenant and they would break the covenant. And so a new type of covenant was promised where hearts would need to be changed. Something more fundamental would need to happen, where God could be known in his fullness, where blessings could be secured and would not be insecure. Christ City, this new covenant would have to be different from the previous ones. It would build upon and fulfill all of the previous ones. And how would it be different from the last ones? Well, because in this new covenant, we would not only see the faithfulness of God, but on the human side of the covenant relationship, we would also see the faithfulness of man in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is faithful God and faithful man establishing and upholding a covenant with us that is made in his blood on the cross. That, that's what's happening 
A secure, a new and better covenant is being made with you. That's what you have. And just like the Exodus, the cross now serves for us as a new monument in time that we look back to, right? Where we see the faithfulness of God on display, where we can truly know who our Lord is. Christ City, I don't know know how you came in this morning. Weighed down by life. Heavy with the burdens of the week or the month or the season. Our text today tells us that for weak and weary people, we need to know the Lord. Not simply by name, but know all that his name means to us as he has revealed himself to us in history, fully and finally in his son. And so do you know him? Do you know him like that? Do you know that if you have accepted Jesus, he has made a covenant with you, meaning that he has graciously chosen you and is committed to you in covenant faithfulness, that he has set his affection on you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And therefore, he will care for you and protect you and promises to deliver you through whatever you're going through. Do you know that if you have accepted Jesus, you have received all of the covenant blessings that are in him, that the promises of God find their yes and amen in him, that if you are in him, he is yours and you are his. Do you know that if you have accepted Jesus, your assurance of all of these things is based not on you, but on his faithfulness to you? Christ City, do you know the Lord? If you're able, would you please stand as we respond?